You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, While We Wait, Exhortations from Second Thessalonians. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, today we're about to look into a quite difficult section of Scripture. And that would be with a capital Q and a capital D, all right? In fact, some church fathers and scholars have labeled this one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible, for sure all of the New Testament. We just aren't quite definitive on all the details. So you may find yourself frustrated today as you try to say, well, what does this mean and where do you land and what's the right answer? Remember, I'm a right answer kind of guy, so this can be difficult. So I'm going to try to take a little extra time for questions today if I can. But I just want you to be up front with you that though there is, there is some obscurity in this, uh, these 12 verses, I don't want God's truth to be obscure. I don't want there to be a lack of clarity about what it is he's accomplishing in this, this set of verses overall. So I want to give this to you up front. Here's kind of where we're headed. Here's what we'll see and here's what we'll come back to. Even amidst perhaps the differences, we're going to come back to this agreement. Let me show you the take-home truth up front in advance. Here's what we know. That at all times, even end times, remember we're in a series about while we're waiting for Christ's return. So let's be, be clear on one thing we do know, that at all times, even end times, God's truth clarified settles God's people when they're shaken by deceitful fear and doubt. And my opinion is that this happens a lot when we're talking about end times. (laughs) We just came through a few years ago, Harold Camping, and predicting the Lord will return. And we, we perhaps, or some of you may have sat back and, can I use the word laugh? Is that okay? Grin, like, oh, that's, (laughs) he's out in left field. But not everyone was that way. Some listened and believed, and some were deceived, and They were distraught when it didn't happen. Oh my goodness, have we missed it? I recall back, uh, not I recall, but I was reading this week, back in, uh, was it in the early 1900s, the Jehovah's Witnesses came out that the Lord would return, I think it was in October of that very year. He didn't. I'm reminded also of different feelings that come about when you talk about end times, such as, um, I, I've heard of people, and this is you, just forgive me, I'm going to probably step on your toes here, but they'll be making an exchange with, you know, at a, at a business or a store, and their change will be $6.66. And they'll say, you can keep a penny, because I'm not taking that change. They feel like somehow that's going to be a problem with them, like, oh man, I, you know, or their address might be 666 Southeast 3rd Street or something, like, I can't live there, you know, and People have some odd feelings about different things related to end times, even currently. There is a view out that says that the coming of Christ occurred in a figurative way in the first century. And so it's already happened. And so when we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there was a group of believers in Thessalonica who were worried that they had missed the day of the Lord, His coming and our gathering to Him... Paul wrote, not to, not to give a lot of details, watch this now, about numbers or dates or events or nations. He simply wrote to say, here's the simplicity 
of God's truth, let it settle your heart. I hope this morning, even amidst the differences and in some ways the honest obscurity, we will leave knowing that God's truth clarified settles God's people when they're shaken. You have no reason to leave here this morning shaken or worried, fearful, doubtful, or thinking you're going to give in to sin if it tempts you. God's truth will settle you at all times, amen? Even end times. So let's take our Bibles and locate 2 Thessalonians 2. We're into second, the uh, week number two of our series called While We Wait. And I just want you to see this text from a large perspective first, all right? And then we'll read it. I'll make a few comments. In fact, what I'll probably do is I read this text based on this outline is I will give you the various options, maybe not all of them, but I'm going to give you various options for how people see some of these verses, okay? When I'm done with that, I'll probably tell you where I land, kind of my view on these, what I'm inclined to think, all right? And then I want to take some questions. So let's see if we can kind of get through this somewhat in a way that's responsible and yet quickly so we can answer some questions. I would ask you, if you do ask some, use the number provided, of course, and then just be humble and and uh, admit that this is an area that probably you don't know all things about either, by the way. I know I don't. And so as we ask and as we answer, don't be surprised if I plead the Fifth Amendment much today in answering your questions, okay? This is a fabulous text that does not leave us fearful. He, Paul wrote it to leave us settled, not shaken. Let's approach it from that angle. Here's what he said. Verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Okay, now I want you to pause there and realize that if you need to probably go back and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Because there, again, he talks about the coming of the Lord. You see the word coming uh, mentioned several times. In my Bible, I've got the word coming in chapter 4 and 5 and Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians kind of circled all connected. Because really what Paul is doing here, he's talking about, I believe, one event that includes several things. He calls this event the day of the Lord. Look what he says later in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord, us being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, Christ's coming, our being gathered, this day of the Lord, whether it's a season, an event, a prolonged time, a a timed time, there can be differences there. But Paul does seem to say, there is this thing called the day of the Lord, and concerning it, which I think includes his coming and our gathering, don't be deceived. That's what he says here. So deception was occurring in that day and age about end times, about the coming of the Lord. And Paul here says, do not be shaken by this. The word shaken there in verse, what is it, verse 2? It's an aorist, a past tense infinitive. It simply means something that happened, and then the result would be the word alarmed. The word alarmed is a present. And so what he's saying is this, something was reported to you, either a letter, a spoken word, something deceitful from someone else, maybe an epistle claiming to be from Paul, and it really wasn't. And it caused you in the past to like be stirred up and emotionally worried, fearful. Oh my goodness, we missed it. And then that led to these consistent present tense feelings 
of, of feeling alarmed, uh, tense. Paul's trying to settle that. And how does he do it? He's going to clarify God's truth. Watch how simply he does this. He says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. So this spirit, which means they're a demonic spirit, a spoken word, a false one, or a letter that was forged, these were things that were deceiving them. And he says, That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then he begins to explain the man of lawlessness with these phrases. He's the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. If you were to back up and just see what two things have to happen before the day of the Lord. Paul says it very clearly. There is a great rebellion, or the word is apostasy, a great falling away, and I believe this would be a falling away within the church. And then, on the heels of that, it appears, or at least in conjunction with that, this man of lawlessness is revealed. We might refer to him as the Antichrist, capital A. Revelation pictures him as a beast, Revelation 13, So I'd write these references down. Revelation 13, he's seen as the beast. Daniel 9, as well as Daniel 11, see him as this ruler who comes into the temple and and, uh, has a kind of conducts, you might say, an abomination of desolations. Here he's known as the man of lawlessness, more literally the man of sin. Either way, Paul seems to be quite succinct and clear, doesn't he? Two things have to happen Before the day of the Lord. Let's just read the text for what it says. The rebellion comes first, this great apostasy, this great falling away, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. Then the day of the Lord, which, based on what I read in verse 1, would be the coming of Christ and our being gathered to him. If you're with me so far, just nod your head. I kind of get this. I'm not asking if you agree. I'm not asking you if you want to rebuttal. I'm just saying that does seem to be the flow of the words in the text. Don't worry. Two things have to happen first before this day of the Lord, his coming and our gathering, and that is these two things, a great apostasy and the Antichrist or man of sin must be revealed. Then, by implication, the day of the Lord, i.e., his coming and our gathering. If you're with me, just nod your head. Okay. We made it through phase one. That's good, okay? Because my goal is not for you to get worried now and shaken and fearful about what we don't know. This is exactly what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to settle God's people. So here's what they would think, at least at this point, reading this historically, they think, wow, well, if those things haven't occurred, we've believed something false, and I don't need to be worried about missing Christ's coming. He hasn't come. That's good. Does that make sense? So they're already experiencing some, some bit of settledness. That's what I want for you this morning. He then goes on, I believe, to explain more about this this antichrist or this man of lawlessness. He begins in verse 5 by by reminding them that he had told them this before. This is an interesting verse, by the way, because we don't know that 
Everything he told them is contained in 1 Thessalonians. There's probably more that he told them orally. He may have actually told them uh, who this person was that we read about in verse 4. This one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. He takes his seat in the temple. He proclaims himself to be God. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. But he, it appears he gave them more information that they should have been able to recall and say, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be deceived. Paul went over this with us. That's kind of the gist, the ambiance of this text here. Now, if you're wondering who is this Antichrist, who is this man of lawlessness, did Paul actually tell them who he was? I don't know the answer to that question. Neither do I know who the Antichrist is. I will say this. Historically, some have seen this person described there in verse 4 as perhaps Antioch Epiphanes, who was described in Daniel. And in sometime around the, what, 170 to 80 B.C., entered the temple and did exactly this, um, created an abomination of desolation there in the temple. Some see this as referring to possibly Caligula, 60-ish A.D., I think it is. Maybe it's B.C., I'm not sure the, name, the date slips me. But he, he didn't quite make the temple because he died. Uh, some see this as perhaps Titus, who was the Roman who was in charge when they overthrew the temple in 70 AD. Of course, Nero was in charge just prior to that. He was responsible for the murder of Peter and Paul. So there's a number of emperors, uh, generals, significant historical figures that folks have said, that must be what he's talking about. I don't know. Okay, And frankly, you don't know either. I do think this is a literal, ultimate antichrist. That's why I said a minute ago, capitally. I think that there have been many antichrists to come out to the world. 1 John 2, verse 18. John said clearly, many antichrists have gone out into the world. But I believe this pictures and kind of describes the ultimate blasphemer. Who at some point, after or in conjunction with a great apostasy, will rise up and in a way that makes all other little a antichrist fade, he does something in which he tries to assume the deity of God. Some see this as a literal, in the temple, sacrifice by a person in a future time. Some see the word temple here as referring to the church, and so they see this in a figurative manner. By the way, the word temple here is used five times by Paul. And in every single time, Paul never refers to a concrete structure. He never refers to the physical structure in Jerusalem, which was still in existence, by the way. This is written about 50 to 51 AD. Paul, every time he used the word temple, he used it of the church. However, it would not be uh, impossible to think that there is going to be either a future temple... Maybe constructed by those who still believe you need to offer sacrifices, which we don't. So I wouldn't say the future temple is going to be one that would offer right worship. Jesus, according to Hebrews, has done everything necessary once and for all. Amen? But could there be a temple built in some way by those who feel like they have to still earn something? Maybe in that place in the future, this ultimate Antichrist is revealed and does this in the inner place, the Holy of Holies? I don't know. And frankly, you don't know either. (laughs) Whatever he's referring to, 
It's the ultimate blasphemer who says, don't believe God, believe me. It says in verse 6 that currently he is restrained. You see verse 6? You now know, or you know, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So this was written to the Thessalonians, and Paul is saying, he's asserting that this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is actually currently being restrained. Don't miss the emphasis of that word now. Something's restraining him now. In verse 6, by the way, just for those of you who like a little English, a little seminary-like situation here, just give me a second here, okay? The idea of a restrainer in verse 6 is more of a neuter, kind of a, an object. Not, it's not masculine or feminine. It's just kind of like, it could be something, but as he moves... Later in the passage, he says, so now you know what is restraining him, it becomes masculine. So, you know, is this restrainer something? Is it someone? Those are good questions, frankly. I don't know, and guess what? You don't either, (laughs) okay? But here's the good news. Something is restraining this ultimate antichrist until the point that he's revealed. And when he's revealed, then Christ's coming and our gathering, i.e. the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? So even in that understanding of doctrine, Paul's saying, listen, guys, yeah, here's this ultimate blasphemer, but guess what? Something's restraining him. I do think Paul told them what that was. That's just my opinion. Because of the phrase, you know what is restraining him. I think this may be one of the things Paul told them in his earlier visit. So whatever it was, it brought a sense of settledness. It, it accomplished the first goal. Guys, don't be shaken. Don't be emotionally disturbed in your mind. Don't, don't be fearful and doubtful. Let God's truth settle you. Christ has got you. You love his truth. He's coming for you. You haven't missed it. Here's why. Two things have to happen. And until they do, there's a restrainer in place. Those are all Items of good news. When the restrainer, though, is taken out of the way, and some, by the way, see the restrainer as the Holy Spirit, and they see this as a reference to the rapture. Some would see this as a reference to the rapture, perhaps seven years prior to the day of the Lord, that end-time event. Some would see this as a rapture event, maybe in those seven years, maybe even at the end. But some see this as a reference to the rapture because the Holy Spirit's taken away. Possible. I've known some folks and have read some folks who've seen the restrainer as civil government. Some see it as the angel in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, some see it as the preaching of the gospel, primarily Paul's preaching of the gospel, which went to the known world at that time. There's a lot of views. I don't know, and frankly, you don't know either. But we do know that whatever or whoever is the Antichrist who will be revealed, he is being restrained by something more powerful than he is. Amen. My view is that this is something sovereign. They knew what it was. We don't. But it was something under the sovereign control of God. And he was using it to restrain, hold back the ultimate influence of this capital A Antichrist. This ultimate capital A Antichrist, however, though he's not revealed yet because two things, uh, because um, it says he's kind of being restrained. 
It doesn't mean that his, his work isn't being done, this mysterious work of lawlessness he talks about. It's already at work. You see that? But it's not been ultimately personified or, or brought to fruition. When it does, and he's revealed, and this great apostasy occurs, then we'll know the coming of Christ. Man, it's right around the corner because it says this, this one that the lawless, the, the lawless one, he says, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Here's the word coming again, going back to verse 1, also chapter 4 of verse Thessalonians, chapter 5 as well. So this coming of Christ and the gathering of his people is also the time in which he kills, he slays, he brings to nothing this ultimate personification of evil, this, this uh, A number one blasphemer. And how does he do it? He does it by the appearance of his coming, or the word appearance there is the word epiphany. And when he appears, when he comes, he'll do this simply by the breath of his mouth. Now, can we just be frank here? Can I just talk to you as a regular pastor? I'm sure I can. I mean, it's one thing to be in a fight, but this is not even a fight. I mean, Christ comes, he appears, and from other texts, like lightning from the sky in a sudden way, in the twinkling of an eye, and apparently just a puff. You didn't even hear that, did you? I mean, just like... The breath of his mouth, the ultimate personification of evil, is vanquished. Like, wow, now that's the captain of our salvation, amen? We're not talking this long struggle. We're not talking about, oh, I hope I can win. God the Father, help me. That's not the cry of Jesus. Jesus comes and with simply a, a breath, the word of his mouth, He brings to nothing the man of lawlessness. Wow. Again, what's happening is the people who are reading this are becoming settled. See, they were shaken. Reports were stirring. Letters were perhaps circulating. They were false, of course, but like, man, have we missed it? What's up? Is the timing of the return wrong? Is the nature of the return wrong? Maybe it's not physical. Maybe it is figurative. Maybe we're messed up on this. And Paul writes in such clear terms, no, it's a visible physical, judgmental return. And this is the captain. This is Jesus, your king. And he's coming. And when he does, the one who is currently restrained, but who one day will be revealed just before he comes, yeah, he'll be brought to nothing. So relax, church. I can almost hear Paul, perhaps, in maybe a non-epistolary way, just bringing someone in the Thessalonian city at the close and saying, hey, guys, just relax. Christ has got this. Remember what I told you? Here's what I'm writing. He says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. I think the inference there is that the coming of Christ is by the power and activity of God. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, will be the antithesis of Christ. He'll be, Christ is the man of righteousness. Here's the man of iniquity, the man of sin. Christ is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. Here's the man who uh, is lawless. Here's one driven by the power of Satan. Christ by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense, guys? So, so Paul here is saying, Satan's driving this one. He'll have power to do false signs and wonders. 
And with wicked deception, he'll, he'll deceive those who are perishing. Do you see that? So they are already perishing and they're being deceived because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Why do people perish? Because they refuse to love God's truth and be saved. And to those who are perishing, when this occurs, at whatever time it is, they will simply follow the Antichrist. They'll think he's right. They'll think, as chapter 5 says, man, he's promising peace and security. Yeah, let's get on board that train. What's actually going to happen, though, is sudden destruction. Can I just pause here and say to you, when Paul references the truth that saves them, it, is, it has to be a reference to the truth about Christ. He's the one who is coming. And Paul here says, guys, the reason we can rejoice in Christ's coming is because we believed his truth and we're saved from what will happen at this day of the Lord, i.e. his coming, are being gathered. When this occurs after the revelation of the lawless one, and when he comes and he destroys the lawless one, don't worry, you won't perish or be deceived because you have believed the truth and have been saved. It's the truth about Christ. And so if any of this talk this morning, maybe you're a guest, maybe you're a long-time attender, maybe you're an elementary school or a junior high school, and somebody's like, man, I'm not sure I'm up for that. Regardless of all the details, that sounds like something's going to happen one day, cataclysmic, that Christ will vanquish all of his enemies. I don't want to be on that side. What have I got to do? Believe the truth and be saved. What truth, Todd? The truth about the one who is to come, Jesus Christ. That he is God's son. He died as your substitution. And that his work completely satisfies God's wrath against you and against sin. Completely, eternally, forever. Christ is completely sufficient to pay your sin debt so that when he does come back he won't extract that payment from you God's already extracted it from Jesus what do I do with that Todd here's a a novel idea right now where you are believe (laughs) do I got to fill a card out no do I got to come to an altar and pray no just in your heart right now say God I believe the truth about Jesus, that he was who he said he was, God in the flesh, and that he did what he said he would do. He died as the only substitution for my sin. So God, because of Jesus, save me, please. And you know what God will do? He will save you. Amen? And then you will not be deceived and you will not perish because you have loved the truth. If you refuse, though, the Bible here says that at some point, In the revelation of this Antichrist, in this falling away, God's going to send them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. These who are perishing, these who have refused to love the truth. Watch this. He's going to let them experience the full extent of their sin. Now, some have asked me, Todd, does that mean God's responsible for lostness? No. All men are condemned already. John says, God in mercy rescues his people from condemnation. But those who remain in condemnation do so because they refuse to believe the truth and be saved. 
They believe instead what is false. And so they're condemned because they did not believe the truth, verse 12 says. But they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So make no mistake. What you believe, who you believe matters eternally. And it may not be showing up a lot in your life right now. You may be thinking, man, I'm, I'm floating along pretty good. But the clarity of this text says to me there's a day coming in which whatever is restraining the Antichrist now will be removed. He will work with such power and deceitfulness and wonders and signs that I believe Matthew 24 says that if it weren't for the fact that they were elect, they too would be deceived. Read Matthew 24. It's a corollary chapter to what's happening here, by the way. I mean, this will be a, a, a charismatic man. And yet, in spite of what he does, Jesus wins. So I want to believe and love that truth. That Jesus, in all of his victory, glory, and might, and splendor, he wins. So that's where I'm placing my faith. All right? So different options about different views in this text. There is a lot we don't know. But there is at least one thing we do know. That this truth should help us feel settled not shaken. Amen? So let's read our take-home truth together. Let's revisit it. Can we do that? After seeing these 12 verses and knowing that, man, I've got a lot of questions still. I've got some things I'm not sure I agree or disagree. I'm not sure what I think about them. But here's one thing we do know, that Paul wrote this to settle them, not keep them shaken. So read with me. Ready? At all times, even in times, God's truth clarified settles God's people when they're shaken by deceitful fear and doubt. So Todd, what, what's your view on this? Well, my view, first of all, is that I, I don't know many of these things either. <laughs> I don't know who the Antichrist is. I don't know what or who the restrainer is. I don't know when he's coming. Here's where I'm, I'm inclined to land on a number of things in this text. I wrote this out this week. I usually memorize things, and I just work, study very hard to try to know what's coming but I thought, you know, I'm going to make sure I had this in writing. <laughs> here's, where I, here's where I'm inclined to land on this chapter. Because this passage deals with one major issue, and that's this. Two signs serving as the primary indicator of the day of the Lord has not arrived. That's the primary issue of the text. There are two primary signs that indicate the day of the Lord has not arrived. I am inclined to believe Paul is here settling the shaken believers by assuring them they, or believers at some point, will see those signs precisely because they will be here. Till that revealing of the ultimate lawless one, the one who personifies the mystery already at work in the many antichrists that have gone out into the world already, some type of sovereign restraint is in place. So there's no need to doubt the promise of his coming and our gathering, for it will not occur till that is removed and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So instead of worry, we wait with confident faith in God's truth and eager expectation for Christ's return 
when he will rescue and resurrect his people, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and kill the man of lawlessness. Amen? That's kind of why I'm inclined to land. The answer, of course, is in loving God's truth, that he has this handled and settled. So don't be shaken. Now, in light of that brief and probably very weak exposition of these verses, let's see if there's a few questions. I don't know if we're already or not, Alan. Let's try to take all three before we wrap this up. Does the term bring to nothing imply death only or a complete annihilation of Antichrist's body and spirit? It does not imply annihilation. Antichrist, the beast, the dragon, false prophet, those are different names used for some of these end times people. Satan, as well as all those who are lost, at some point will be thrown into the lake of fire. So they're not annihilated. They're simply uh, sent to pay the price for their sin. Good question. Next question. While the Antichrist is a specific man, do you think Satan has had many Antichrists throughout history because he doesn't know the time or day of the Lord? I do. I don't know if that's the reason. It may be. I don't know. But I do think that Satan has empowered various people. I don't think he's empowered them like rats. I thought he would do it and he didn't. Let me try another guy now. I don't think he did it from that reason. I think he simply is working a system of lawlessness knowing that his time and end is sure. For instance, uh, when I was a kid, I think many folks thought Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Did you know that? And if you're about my age or older, you probably remember that. They, they took his name and they felt in some way it added up to 666. And so they labeled him the Antichrist. Steve, you remember that, don't you? Um, there are those who today are calling certain political officials the Antichrist. There have been, um, I'll tell you this in a minute, Martin Luther thought it was the papacy. Sometimes even the Pope. Uh, there are those in certain views who believe it was certain historical leaders from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries. So you ought to do some reading on this. It's, it's very intriguing. Um, maybe that's not at your interest level. Uh, yours is a lot higher than mine probably, I'm, I'm telling you. But this is quite interesting. I do think, though, there is a system, a, a mystery of lawlessness at work here, which means something that we don't quite understand until it's revealed, and then we kind of get it. And John said, 1 John 2, 18, that there, is, there are many antichrists already gone out into the world. So this is happening, it's at work. It was at work in their day, the very first century. I would say in my framework, it's still happening today as we're waiting for these two events, which will signify to us, ah, the day of the Lord is coming. And until they happen, we can rest secure that there is a restraint in place. So, yes to the question. Third question. Who created this man of a lawlessness? Well, God creates all human beings. And he creates them, as Romans says, for his divine purposes. Now, figuring that out and what all that means is left to bigger minds than mine. Um, what, who creates someone and who empowers and engineers and drives someone could be a different question. The scriptures here tell us clearly that this Antichrist is empowered... He's driven, he's energized by Satan. Okay? So he does not believe the truth. He's not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But God's people, we are. 
And Jesus, who is the anti, antichrist, how's that work, you know? He was filled by the Holy Spirit. He was God. And everything he did was in obedience to the will of God and in reliance upon the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So, the Antichrist was created. Jesus Christ, of course, was not created. He has always been eternally distant with God. But the Antichrist is a created person by God, yet driven and empowered by Satan for evil purposes. Let me add a fourth question to this list. Because I got this earlier this morning on text from our Bondurant campus. Someone said, Todd, how does this square with imminence? This seems to say that we can know what's coming. I thought that we were not to know the day or the hour. I want to address that briefly. If you read the scriptures in 1 Thessalonians 5, Matthew 24, and write these down, Luke 21, Mark 13, you'll find that the references to the, the sudden um, devastation that the coming of Christ will bring, even 1 Thessalonians 4, the idea of a twinkling of an eye, um, and when Christ talked about his coming being as lightning from the east to the west, it's in regards to how those who don't believe will perceive it and see it. But Paul actually says in 1 Thessalonians 5, but you are not children of the night. You are children of the day. You should not be in darkness. The, the clear, and I don't say it's an implication, I think the clear, explicit teaching is you will know some things are happening so you can be ready. So I think the idea of like, we don't know what's going to happen is actually not the most correct statement. Lost people have no idea it's coming. But God's people are not children of the night. We're children of the day. We should look and see our redemption is drawing near. Hallelujah. That's what should happen. And if you check out the the majority of text, you'll find that Jesus was instructing his disciples in the first century and Paul the church in the latter centuries to do exactly this. Be ready. So I think eminence... The imminency of Christ's return means this. It is next for us, but it is not surprising to us. Does that make sense? It is next for us. We're not waiting on anything else. We're waiting on the coming of Christ. There are some things that will happen that will help us be ready and know. But man, it, will, it should not surprise us. We know it is next. But those who are of the night, those who are in the dark... They'll think, man, it's peace and safety. Life's never been better. And then suddenly, one will be taken, one will be left. There'll be a vanishing, a twinkling of an eye. There'll be a worldwide disaster because the king of kings has arrived. He will vanquish his foes, including their leader, the Antichrist. And from my perspective, what we will enter into will be the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ followed by the eternal state. And I can't wait for those days. And no, we haven't missed them. I want to close by simply letting you know this truth has been something debated and talked about for years, actually for centuries. I just picked up, Brooke brought this home to me. This is a copy of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. There are 95 statements that he invited people to either debate with him about or orally or in writing. He believed, by the way, that the papacy was the Antichrist, but he was wrong. 
Yes, Martin Luther can be wrong. Um, He said, though, in his last two theses, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than the false security of peace. See, you know what I like about that? It says he's focusing our eyes not on what some man can do for us. Oh, man, life's good. Okay, this is what I'm after. No. But instead, we're focused our eyes on Jesus and his coming. And until then, yes, it could be difficult, but Paul says not to worry. God's got you. God's got this. And you haven't missed his coming. Two things have to happen. So until then, and we'll see this in next week's verses, just stand strong because your God is a mighty fortress. And when he comes, he will vanquish all his foes. The same guy that wrote those last two theses that talked a good bit about these kinds of things, he wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, as well. This was written in 1517, not this actual book. (laughs) The 95 statements by Martin Luther were posted on the Wittenberg door in uh, 1517. History says that in 1527... He wrote the words to the song, A Mighty Fortress. Here's the first verse. I don't know if you know this. This is an old hymn. It's great, though. And it speaks to some of these same things. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. If you know this, you're kind of singing it, aren't you? And isn't this second song too? His craft and power, they're great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Whether he wrote that about the papacy then, thinking that was the Antichrist, it's true about the Antichrist when he is revealed. He will work deceitfully strong signs and wonders. But he'll be no match for our God. Here's how the next part goes. Maybe we could sing it. Did we in our own strength confide Our striving would be losing Were not the right man on our side Here it is The man of Christ He's the one coming, amen Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus, it is He, Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win, amen, He must win. There's more, let's keep singing. And though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We, not shaken, not fearing, not doubting. God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for, amen. We're not shaken by Him. You can endure whatever he throws your way. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail. 
Will you stand? Let's sing this final verse. Let's raise it a key. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill. Sing this with passion, church. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever.